Hello, friends, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe. I'm Cheryl Nason. Alberto Mangal once said, Maybe this is why we read and why in moments of darkness we return to books, to find words for what we already know. Well, our show features the hottest authors and introduces you to exciting new authors talking about themselves and their latest book. Joining me today is Samantha Sims to talk about her book, CQCQ, My Last Transmission. During her tenure as an air traffic controller from 1990 to 2014, she kept a journal detailing her difficulties with that working environment. Samantha is also a race car enthusiast who enjoys volunteering as a driving coach at various events, as well as volunteering at the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp for Children that was started by Paul Newman. Samantha, welcome. Thank you kindly for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. First of all, I'm really curious. Tell me what the title of the book means. Well, why I was putting the book together over three years, I really couldn't come up with a name, and I was watching the Jodie Foster movie Contact, and at the beginning as a child, she's on the ham radio going, CQ, CQ, this is W9GFO, come back. Well, when I was a air traffic controller, my operating initials were CQ, Charlie Quebec. And in the ATC world, when we finish a landline communication of boarding or passing information, we don't say goodbye. We give our initials. So in the ham radio world, it means seeking or searching. And in my world, it means goodbye. So it seemed pretty natural. CQ, CQ, my last transmission. Here's my true story. That's a great title. Thank you for clearing that up for me. I thought, huh? So I had to ask that question. How did you first become involved in the field of air traffic control? How did you go to work in that field? Oh, that's pretty funny. And uh, most men look at me weird when I tell them the story, but... My father raised me to be a professional bowler. When I did not follow through on that ambition of his, because I didn't have the passion for it, he told me, don't think you're living at home past 21. And, you know, being a Virgo that's very particular about things, I knew that I wouldn't live very well with a a roommate or a friend. So I was like, hmm, what do I need to do? So my uncles recommended the Navy, and I joined the Navy. And towards the end of the Navy, a lieutenant that I became friends with informed me that the FAA was still hiring replacement controllers for the ones Reagan fired. So I got into that by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin in the last couple of groups they hired to replace the fired controllers from the strike with PACO. Well, I was wondering about that because I remember, I hate to admit I'm old enough to remember when Reagan just flat out fired all of the air traffic controllers. And when I saw the dates of your tenure with the the FAA, I thought, hmm, I wonder if this had anything to do with the Reagan thing. So that, that makes the story, I think, much more interesting. Tell me why that environment is so difficult? Well, first of all, it is the most stressful job. And the crazy part is 
I took a postal worker to a pilot retirement party, and the postal worker is standing there talking to a bunch, bunch of us, and the postal worker says, if your job's so much more stressful than mine, how come you guys don't go postal? And one of the guys quickly responded, uh, it's because we drink and sleep with each other. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's a very naughty boy environment that has been left to go unchecked. And for the longest time, it was one of the last fields that really let women become a, a major minority because we're still not a majority. What made you decide, first of all, to start keeping a journal? I've always written. Um, even as a child, I would, because my father moved us so much, I would keep my friends, and then I would write them letters and just tell them stories. And my father loved it when I was in the Navy because I would just write him these 10-page letters. So I never went to college. I don't have proper schooling. My vocabulary is very limited. And he just enjoyed reading my stories. And the therapist that I had in the Navy, because on October 13, 2007, a plane flew into a thunderstorm. I adamantly told him to stay out of and unfortunately, he lost control of his plane and died. And, of course, being human, I just tears. And so I had to leave work on trauma leave. Well, somebody called me that night and said, Carrie, you need to go talk to Dr. Beecham. So I went and saw Dr. Beecham, and he said, pleasure to meet the infamous Samantha Sims. I can't give you names, dates, times, and places, but they have beat the crap out of you in that place. So I've used Dr. Beecham's advice to get through all of that stuff that was happening. So it's really been a catharsis for you when you journal. Yeah, because it allows me to just get out those negative energies that I had to deal with all day because I'm not a religious person. I guess you would say I'm more agnostic. Mm -hmm. So I look at that building when I get out of my car walking up that, that sidewalk and I go, hey, Dr. Beecham, just for you. Lord, this is way more than I can handle. It's, it's in your hands. I'm along for the ride. Here we go. And I did just exactly what he told me to do. Hold the higher ground. And I quickly learned the longer you hold the higher ground and even to it with a smile on your face and the more negative they are, the worse they look. So I became very powerful, as Dr. Beecham put, put it, and he told me, as you become more powerful, you cannot use your power to, to help yourself. You can only help to, you, for, for other people. So I had to learn to just go with the flow, and as I grew more powerful fighting them and, and winning and beating them at their own game, they ended up having to send me home the last year and nine months to sit in my house from six to three because they couldn't keep me safe at work. And the main reason was that is the union would step in to protect the harassers. And the reason why my situation perpetuated so long was in 1990, I was like, oh, I'll go in and do the right thing, and I'll go to my union. But the union was taking that information I was giving them to help protect the harasser. And as I was told, 
having beers, watching football Monday night at a sports bar with a former facility union president, he's like, you're never going to have a safe work environment because they're always going to protect the harasser. And then once that set in and I started standing my ground and realizing I'm on this road alone if I'm going to survive because all the other women you know, ended up with non-disclosure clauses in their settlement papers. So that's why you haven't heard about them, because they can't talk about it. But the FAA's own Washington lawyer left the non-disclosure clause out of my settlement, and that's why I'm able to tell you just part of the story. This book is just a smidgen of what I dealt with, not the whole thing. Why don't we give our listeners a little bit of an overview, Samantha, of, of what the book really is about? It is really about the way that if you disagree with the click at work, how they went out of their way to mentally destroy someone so that you would commit suicide in 2006 like Linda Peterson did, or just leave the FAA altogether like Ann Whiteman had to do and sue the FAA out of court for almost a million dollars for the mental anguish she went through. I even read that she had to get jaw surgery because of the stress it caused. So that's how I ended up where I'm at. So this book really details what happened. You're telling the story from your perspective and you're telling the incidents and giving examples of things that actually happened to you. Is that right? Yeah, it reads like a journal. I mean, in the beginning, it's my story as a child, how I ended up where I ended up with the FAA. And then the FAA part is basically a dated diary of the things that I had to deal with and go through and the people I had to be introduced to because it it got so bad that um, Secretary of Transportation Ray LaHood from the audits and evaluation office in D.C. sent two gentlemen to my building without the union's knowledge to discuss to me and then talk to my coworkers and get an idea. And on the second day when they interviewed me, the gentleman that I perceived being like an FBI psychologist profiler said to me, Carrie, I'm so sorry. How did you survive this? And I go, a uh, single mom and didn't want to go husband hunting, so I had to hunker down. And he goes, this is unbelievable. He goes, you were an incredibly overachieving human being, and then when you came to the FAA, it just, nothing. I go, yeah, they tried to destroy me, so I just had to, like, hunker down and keep my peace of mind, and with Dr. Beecham, I was able to do that. Let's talk about the auto racing. That sounds like a really <laughs> exciting part of your life, and it sounds like something you're really passionate about you really like. Well, um, I always knew my dad had this trophy with this car on top, and I was so young that I really didn't understand what it was, but my father was the 1963 automatic competition stock drag racing champion with a 58 Etzel. Wow. When I gravitated and discovered the racing environment all on my own, dad goes, do you remember the trophy? I said, yeah. And he goes, well, that's where your passion from this car stuff comes from. And I went, yay. And then I've always heard that air traffic controllers have a life expectancy of five years after retirement. So I got to thinking about it and I go, why is that? Well, for 20 plus years, we live on adrenaline every day because when our sectors get busy, our stress, anxiety, and panic levels get pushed. 
and that's why controllers have to retire at 50 if they're eligible and mandatory retirement at 56 because we're human carbon units and we burn out. So what ended up happening is I said, well, I want to live more than five years after retirement. So I ran across a gentleman who has a stable of Corvettes in South Florida and I said, you still have that racing school and your classes still count towards a SCCA race competition license? And he said yes. And that was the beginning of a really fun, passionate sport that I looked at one day and said, holy cow, I'm in the most dangerous sport and I feel safer here than I do at work. Wow. Well, it sounds like you've really got a passion for this. You're a driving instructor as well? Yes, um, for the hooked on driving, high performance driving experience, the Porsche and BMW Owners Club, along with the National Corvette Museum's high performance driving events, I am a excellent novice instructor. I don't have enough seat time to become an intermediate or advanced driver, but I'm allowed to drive in the advanced groups because being taught good habits from the very beginning, I don't have bad habits. Just like when I started racing motorcycles in 2005, after only three track days with SportBikeTrackTime.com, because Freddie Spencer taught me how to drag a knee, they made me an instructor. But on the last track day in November, I passed a guy who didn't like being passed by a girl, so he took me out at about 120 miles an hour, and I kind of had to give that up because I'm still hurt from that injury. Jeez. <laughs> Pretty impressive, Samantha. You, Pretty impressive. So you also do volunteer work with the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp. That's a children's camp that was actually started by Paul Newman. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, that was a blessing in disguise. Um, in the course of my wanderings around and looking for safe places to go, I started spending a lot of time following Andy Pilgrim and his SCCA World Challenge race series across the country for the season because I felt safe getting lost in the noise and chaos of a racetrack environment because if it's noisy, no one's putting you down. You can't hear it, you know? Right. And so... I ended up meeting some gentlemen who worked with Speed Channel at the time, and Tom Natchu was a very charismatic charismatic announcer, and he told me, volunteer for your local SCCA, and, you know, working night, weekend shifts work, that really wasn't something I could do, but when I was on trauma leave for the seven months when the plane crashed in 2007, I did call up my SCCA and start volunteering, and as the people got to know me, because they're smart, intelligent people, they kind of navigated me. I was never pushed, and I ended up meeting Paul Newman's best friend about five months after Paul Newman passed away, and he said, here's my personal cell phone number and my name. Go ahead and apply for the Hole in the Wall Game Camp as a camp counselor. I recommend the Sickle Cell Week. Because those kids, when they're in that environment where they're safe, that personality that they have to use to survive in their environments in Harlem, the Bronx, it comes out in the most beautiful personalities. And I said, okay. So they interviewed me for 45 minutes to find out what kind of a person I was. And because I 
had a son who was ADHD, they said, oh, well, then we need a mommy figure for the youngest group of boys, and that's where they put me. So being used to that energy from seven to nine-year-olds, I went into this place and just my first time there, I, I almost wanted to cry every day because how safe I felt and how kind everybody was and even the children and the most humbling experience I had was on one of the last nights they have a banquet for all the kids everybody gets an award everybody gets a pat on the back and this little boy sitting next to me as the director for the camp is going and we want you to take this love and passion home with you that you've you know felt here and the little boy looks at me and he goes I can really take this home and I just looked at him and went Wow, you know what? These kids, they need this camp, but you know what? I needed it too, and that's kind of what allowed me to go. Okay, I can survive this. All that mean stuff they're doing to me at work—it's not going to kill me. It's going to wear me down, but it's not going to kill me. And there is a light at the end of that tunnel, and it was my retirement day on September 30th, 2014. Well, it sounds like you have done all the right things. I think writing the book was a cathartic thing for you to do at the advice of Dr. Beecham. Congratulations, Dr. Beecham. And then (laughs) volunteering at this camp with kids. And you're right. There's nothing quite like that experience. And then doing what you've been doing with the racing. I mean, it just all sounds so terrific. If our listeners want the book, I know that they can go to Amazon and in the book search feature, they can just put in, now it's capital CQ comma, capital CQ dot dot dot, my last transmission by Samantha, S-A-M-A-T-H-A, Sims, S-I-M-S. If they put that in the book search feature and click on it, the book comes right up because that's exactly what I did. But the book is available other places too, Samantha. Where is it available? Well, my publisher has created an entire website just for me in the book, and it is basically CQ, CQ, my last transmission, no spaces, and you can make it small or capital letters. And you can find me on Facebook. I have a CQ, CQ, my last transmission page, and you can follow me on Twitter under Speed Racer 440. And aren't you on Instagram as well? Yes, ma'am, and the name for my account on Instagram is D-E-L-E-O-N-C-A-R-R-I-E. So I look forward to sharing pictures and comments and opinions with my uh, new fans, I hope. I'm, I'm definitely looking for supporters and not haters anymore. Well, Samantha, I'm a supporter, not a hater. I think you've done a terrific job. I think you've done something that's very courageous, and I want to thank you for taking time to be a guest on our show today. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Well, thank you. I was honored that you asked me to do this interview, so thank you very much. Our time is up, and we'd like to thank you for yours. Remember... Pick up a good book and read.